Certain information set forth in the podcast may contain forward-looking statements under applicable security laws. These statements are not guarantees of future performance, and undue reliance should not be placed on them. Although forward-looking statements contained in this presentation are based upon what management of the company believes to be reasonable assumptions, there can be no assurance that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate. LifeSci advisors and the company undertake no obligation to update forward-looking statements in the podcast should circumstances or management's estimates or opinions change. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It is not an offer or solicitation to buy securities and does not constitute investment advice. Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, had mentioned 2% of the American public has access to biologics. It was 40% of our federal budget, prescription drug budget. This is an unsustainable model. So we're going to approach all the different diseases and try to use this platform in conjunction with big pharma, biotech, governmental agencies, and academia to help them speed the development, lower the cost of producing biologic vaccines and drugs so that we can provide health equity to a global population. Hello, my name is Neil Canavan, and this is Bench Talk Bios, a podcast series by LifeSite Partners where we introduce healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the biotech sector forward. My guest today is Mark Emelfarb. He is the founder and current president and CEO of Dyadic International. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So let's start with an elevator pitch for Dyadic. When did you found the company? Where are you headquarters? And give me an idea of what you do there. So Dyadic is a global biotechnology company that was founded originally in 1979. We're located in Jupiter, Florida, but we have a global presence and a footprint, mostly in Europe in Helsinki, in Hungary, and in Spain, but also collaborating partners in India, South Africa, and other countries around the world. All right. So nice and short. Thank you. For more details on Dyadic, just wait for a few minutes. But first, keeping with Benchtop Bio's mission, we're going to talk a bit about the leader of your company, and that would be you. So let's start very simply. Where were you born, sir? I was born in Chicago, Illinois. Ah, House of Blues. Very nice. So you attended undergraduate not too far away at University of Iowa. This would be home of the Hawkeyes, and that's relevant in just a moment. You majored in journalism and business. So let me see, class of 77. I will note for people on the podcast, I am actually can see Mr. Emil Farb, and he has a turntable. So quick question. These are the top albums of 1977. Live of Budokan, Cheap Chick. Blondes had more fun, Rod Stewart. In Through the Outdoor, Led Zeppelin and Breakfast in America, Super Tramp. Did you actually buy any of them? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so sad. The other one on the list is by Barbara Streisand, and I wasn't going to ask that one. So back to your studies. Journalism. What were you going to do with that? You like to write? Well, it's not that I like to write. I was actually in the mass communication side of journalism where the media is the message, right? Okay. Know your audience, the susceptibilities what they understand, how to approach them, which, of course, for business, it worked out because, you know, you have a customer. If you don't understand the customer's needs, you can't fulfill them. So learning how to communicate with people is being, is very useful no matter what industry or application or science you enter. So it worked out good from that standpoint. And then also, dyadic, the name of the company is two-way communication. If a gene and a cell don't communicate with each other, you don't make a protein. And the goal is to make proteins. And the better we communicate, the more business we get, but also the better a cell and the gene communicate, the higher level of productivity of the protein coming out. So it even fits 40-some years later. 
Excellent. Excellent. So let's go to the other part of your major, business. Did you have a type of business in mind? Judging by the rest of your story, I can't tell. No, my father was an entrepreneur. My grandfather was an entrepreneur. So you heard, what is it? Nature versus nurture. Right. I think either my genetics have the nature, certainly nurtured to become an entrepreneur. So I graduated college, moved to LA, take it on, started to do some real estate classes, got called back home to work for dad. Dad told me that I had rocks in my head when uh, the stonewashing <laughs> was starting to emerge. Oh, wait, wait, you're jumping ahead. Okay, stonewash blue jeans. Oh my God, we're back in the 70s. And I was there. I remember this. All right, so I want to touch on something from college because this is kind of an interesting aside. You have a brush with fame, if you will. You were on the NCAA National Championship Wrestling Team for two years, and the man coaching the team was a man named Dan Grable. Gable. This guy won the Olympic gold medal. I remember his name from when I was a kid. He was really, really famous. Can you tell me anything about that experience that taught you about how to be on a team or how to lead a team? Or tell me about Dan. Let me tell you about Dan first. So there's Dan Gable, the Olympic gold medalist that you're speaking of. That is the most famous wrestler probably on the planet, certainly in America. Yeah. And still to this day, I believe that's the case. And he was initially the assistant coach in my, I think, junior year when we won our first national championship under Gary Kirtlemeyer and then became head coach my senior year. And Dan would work out with us in the room. And Dan could actually, even though he's my weight class, I wrestled 150. He was 149 and a half in the Olympics. <laughs> I think I was more muscular, but he was more talented. And so... He could beat the heavyweight in our room. So you have a 150-pounder beating national championship heavyweights, 190, 177. He was that good. I remember him as being really fast. He was fast. He knew the leverage. He knew how to motivate you. Just having him in the room was motivation. But when you were at the University of Iowa at that time, it wasn't just Dan Gable. We had Jay Robinson, who became the head coach of the Minnesota Gophers later. You had 5, 10, 15 other wrestlers that were Olympic class that came to train at Iowa, the university. So we get beat on pretty well. And when you get beat on, you learn how to get better. You get Your <laughs> technology gets elevated to the next level because to survive, you, you have to learn how to do things faster, quicker, more intelligently. So my skills dramatically improved by the people in that room and on my teammates. And it wasn't just the teammates at the University of Iowa, my team itself, but it was all these training Olympic athletes that were there. They were very helpful. They were really like almost... They weren't father images because they were still young, but they mm. took you under the wing and they actually cared about your performance and tried to help motivate you. And the one thing that I came from, my background was a little more different than a lot of them. You know, I came from a Midwest Chicago suburb, fairly upper Midwest, upper class neighborhood. And my goal was not necessarily to become an Olympic wrestler. It was to become a successful businessman when I graduated college. So wrestling was a great thing for me in terms of training. Discipline, mm -hmm. persistence, drive, determination. And you learned all of that, certainly in high school, but also from the family and the drive that you have as an entrepreneur. And I think that persistence is what's paid off because to me, no means maybe. And a lot of times in science, as we move forward and you learn, you know, with my background wasn't normally as a scientist through college, but writing your own checks for 20 some years, you learn the science a lot deeper and a lot broader. But I knew how to apply it to the business world, how to make money with it and where to take it. And I think that's been a huge success. And there's been adversity. We've had ups and downs, but we've survived many of those adversities and gotten stronger. And you learn that in wrestling. 
because you could have a kid you beat 23 to 5, and then on a given day, like Dan Gable, he won three national championships in his last match his senior year for the Olympics. He actually lost to Larry Owings, which is like a mind-blowing experience. And so for us, it was mind-blowing watching him when we were in high school. But when he, you can imagine the disappointment, and he overcame that, and it drove him even further and faster that nobody scored a point on him in the Olympics. The Russians, he just dominated that space. And that drive led to what we learned in the wrestling room at the University of Iowa, is you just push and you just push harder, and it was just motivating. So let me go to your business experience now. You mentioned you wanted to start a company right out of college. You certainly did do that. One of them was called the Emil Farb Investment Corporation. As I understand that it has involved real estate, there were a couple other ventures involved there. But in terms of Diana, I mean, you started all this at roughly the same time. It's interesting that there are no other corporate positions in your CV prior to the founding of Dyadic, which is really unusual in the biotech space. Okay, you had the background, the DNA. Is that all it took for that young man to think, yeah, I can start and run a company. I can do this. Well, I think what it took was imagination. And again, no means maybe. So you just go do it. It's kind of like Nike. Just go do it. And I think a lot of the things we did in the early days and even today is we look at things is what's the solution and how are we going to get there? And do we have a technology that can lead us to where we want to go? And I started the company. I was working for my father in the landscape stone business. He was supplying lava rock and marble chips around bush, bushes, trees. And we we're bringing that lava rock in from New Mexico to Chicago. The freight weight was $24 a ton. The rock was 10 So we were really in the freight business, right, to below your cost. And so I got a Time Life book on volcanoes, and I ran around the world to the Canary Islands, to Iceland, to all over the place to look for lava rock on the water so we can move that by freight at a much lower cost. And I landed in Iceland. And in Iceland, we ended up bringing a boatload, massive amount of lava rock to Chicago through the Great Lakes for about $6 a ton instead of $24 a ton for freight. And now all of a sudden, we had a much better margin. But when I was there, they had just started selling pumice stone to wash blue jeans in Europe, stonewash jean industry. I came home and I told my dad, this is a great opportunity. And his answer was, I have rocks in my head. <laughs> that nobody was going to put rocks in a washing machine. <laughs> and oh, this is worse. The no one's going to take some perfectly good jeans and halfway ruin them and then sell them for $50 more. Right. Well, it wasn't a fad. It wasn't a year thing. They're still making stonewash blue jeans. But now they make those, instead of just with pumice stone, they use enzymes, which led us to, in the, in the 80s, we were selling in the neighborhood of $14, $15 million a year with a pumice stone for stonewashing jeans. So with the rocks wow. in my head turned into cash in my pocket. Wow. And so enzymes came to displace the pumice in the process at some point in the 80s and the early 90s. And we became a distributor for the largest enzyme companies. because we had the uh, uh, Oh, hang on. Hang on. Let me stop. So we got a wrestler with a bunch of rocks. And somebody came to you and said, listen, your competition is actually enzymes. And you're like, sure. What's that? I mean, what was the, did you immediately latch onto it? it like, yeah, okay, no brainer, let's do this. Or what's the learning curve there? Yeah, well, I think the learning curve was I was working with a chemical company, Ecolab, in combination with their salespeople. We'd use our pumice. They'd put their chemicals in a washing machine okay. for the stone wash or acid wash process. And then the enzymes came, and I figured it's my birthright. So if it was going to be a rock, an <laughs> enzyme, or no matter what it was, it was coming from me and from Dyadic. And so we became a distributor at first. And then the magic moment came when two, three years later, the big enzyme companies took on the wrestler. 
<laughs> because they started to put on more distributors, my margin trunk, my volume trunk. And I naively said, I'm going to make my own enzyme. And so out of sort of naivety, drive, persistence, the things we learned in that wrestling room, I looked around and said, I can go to MIT and I can hire two guys. I can go to Stanford, hire two guys. Or I can go to Russia where the wall fell in 1990 and mm. I can hire 35 guys. It seemed to me 35 people against two, we'd win that wrestling match, okay? And so in the end, we found a fungus among us that we nicknamed C1 that made an enzyme, but it made it at very minute quantities. And we brought that cell line back to America to a company in Wisconsin called Biotechnical Resources. Because remember, I'm not a biologic expert at this point. And we didn't have our own lab. So we went and found people that had already done similar things for other industries and other applications that had that knowledge and expertise. We paid them to engineer this. And they did random mutagenesis because there was no sequencing in the human genome at that point. We had a serendipitous mutation that changed the growth characteristics of this fungal cell that led to a several hundred-fold improvement in productivity. So it brought the cost from $300 a pound down to a dollar. Now we're in business because the market price was like 15. And so we can undercut the same guys that had picked on us and put on the distributors and the margin shrunk. And all of a sudden, they woke up and said, how the hell did this happen? And the answer was luck, serendipity, hard work, persistence, you name it. We, we had it all fall in the right place at the right time. But we didn't stop there. Let me get to that point. So you're doing some serious business here, right? You're working with major corporations. Right. Give me an idea of some of the deals you were in. Well, we developed not only enzymes to wash blue jeans, we started to develop enzymes for biofuels, pulp and paper, animal feed, other aspects of textile, et cetera. The industrial enzyme business, which is a couple billion dollar market, dominated by Novozymes and Genicor. So what we did is not only did we sell these products on our own in 35 countries around the world, so we developed them, we had them manufactured and produced them and sold them. We also licensed the technology to BASF, Shell Oil, Abengoa Bioenergy, and others. And then in 12 31 2015, DuPont purchased our industrial biotech business for $75 million. And we decided to keep the cell line and to modify it to go into the animal and human health pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. All right. So let me stop you on that. So again, we're talking all sorts of heavy-duty industrial applications, anywhere from fuel, as you say, to stonewashed genes. Does someone come to you and say, hey, you know what, we can make these for healthcare, these proteins? Or you read an article. How did this epiphany come to you? It's like, yeah, guess what? There's another business here. Well, we started thinking about this as far back as 2005, 2003, because we were part of the bio organization, bio. Oh, bio really? Okay. Feed, feed, fuel, and heal the world. And so we already fed and fueled the world with our technology, and the final frontier was to heal the world. And so we were thinking about and tinkering around a little bit with the pharmaceutical industry while we were an industrial biotech company. We worked with a company like Sanofi Pasteur on influenza vaccines back then. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until we had the resources to really attack the market and to really modify these cells. We had a round peg in a square hole. We had a very powerful industrial biotech platform technology to make massive scale proteins at low cost and large volumes. And in the pharmaceutical industry, we needed to make a different type of class and attributes to those proteins. And so when we had the $75 million that we took in from DuPont on the sale of the industrial biotech business, we bought $22 million of our own shares back and kept the rest to go on the journey of totally transforming biomanufacturing 
to reduce the cost of goods, to make healthcare accessible and affordable for a global population, not just for America and the West and the more rich countries, but the moderate to lower income countries. So at this point in the story, you have a goal in mind, you have some validation from larger players, but at the same time, in the world of biotech, you're hardly the only person producing proteins in reactors. Baclovirus has been used and very well characterized and scaled up and so on. Genzyme was certainly on the map. Did anyone come to you and say, you're out of your depth here? Absolutely. Not anyone, everyone. <laughs> but you know what? We've proved them wrong already, and we're going to completely transform this industry. All right. So give me a couple of very specific examples of back of virus, let's say. What can you do they can't? Well, I'll give you a great example. So in 2015 through 2020, we were involved with a European research-funded project called ZEPIs, Zoonosis Anticipation Preparative Initiative. So this is all about zoonotic diseases and getting ready for a potential pandemic. And so in ZAPI, they had E. coli, which you know is in every lab in the world. They were using baclovirus. And we produced 300-fold higher productivity of the antigens in that program. 300, not three. And so we did it in three days less time, more stably. So we can make more. We can do it faster. We can make it cheaper. And guess what? Baclovirus has viruses. Two steps of purification you got to remove. We didn't have to do that because we don't have endotoxins. We don't have mycotoxins. We don't have viruses. So in the real world, we probably had a safer way of making these things, but we had to go out and prove it. So we can make a lot of it. We can make it cheap. We can make it in standard E. coli microbial fermenters that are all over the world. It can be tech transferred. We were ready when the pandemic came. The shame of it is the European Union didn't give the scientists the money when the pandemic came to take advantage of this incredible research that they took five years to fund. They left it on the shelf and they moved on. But we took advantage of it and we're moving on with those same scientists from Zappi, Albert Osterhaus from Tiho University in Germany, Varen von Bosch with Utrecht University, and Bart Hagemans with Erasmus Medical Center. Those three scientists are three to top 20 COVID, MERS, and SARS scientists for the last 20 years. And they came and we got together when the Europeans didn't fund their project to UC1. And together we're moving forward along with the Israeli government, which we can talk about, to really make what we believe is the most cost-effective, most available vaccine platform in the world. Elaborate just a bit on that. Why, why did the Israelis come to you? Well, we had started working with the Israelis in 2018, two years before the pandemic, just like the Europeans in 2015. And in that case, we were preparing for potential biological threats, because, of course, Israel is always under threat, as well as pandemic. So it was biological outbreaks and potential biological threats. And in that program, we had developed an FC fusion enzyme to help Israel defend its population against sarin and VX gas attacks. So when the pandemic hit, the Europeans and the Israelis had some experience working with C1. They saw the power, the productivity, the speed, the robustness, the versatility that we could work at. And so from both fronts, they both decided to work on the smaller receptor binding domain protein rather than the full spike of SARS-CoV-2, mm -hmm. because the crown of the full spike is 80% of where the neutralizing antibodies come from. It's easier to make, it's smaller, potentially safer. The long COVID, the ERD, ADE, all these issues around health and sort of side effects would be diminished, they believe, by using the smaller protein that focused on the neutralizing antibodies. So they had the same approach. And we took the sequence from the Israelis and the sequence from the Europeans, popped it into C1. And guess what? Came out at massive levels, very cheap, very fast. 
And the European sequence was a little more productive than the Israeli. So we just gave the Israelis the same cell line C1 with the European sequence and pursued it in multiple fronts all over the world. We had up to 12 animal studies going on in different parts of the country and all over in different parts of the world. I'm sorry, globally. And you're heading towards first in man, as I understand it, rather soon. Yes. Tell me a bit about that trial. How many patients you're looking at? You've got a timeline? Yeah. So in that trial, just to give you the kind of lay of the land, which I think is important, we took this cell line we developed with the Israelis and the Europeans and started to produce it in conjunction with those scientists we talked about. We ran multiple animal studies in Europe, in Israel, in Cuba, for example, in India, in Korea, all over the world. And I think we even worked where we actually did actually work with the Frederick National Lab, which is a part of NIH, NIAID, Dr. Fauci's lab, on a different project at the same time. And we advanced that now till we finished our preclinical studies, including a very successful toxicology study, which not only demonstrated safety, but prolonged protection. So in our New Zealand white rabbits, which is similar to what J&J used for their toxicology study, we're seeing even more prolonged benefits. So we're hoping that when we get into the phase one trial sometime this year, that'll not only show safety, which is the preliminary benefit of a phase one, but also potential better efficacy and long-term protection. And assuming those results will be good, how does this inform us as far as variants are concerned? Well, the, the interesting thing, and if you look on our website on dyadic.com under Media Center Presentations, we have a SARS-CoV-2 presentation to demonstrate. We not only made the Wuhan RBD, we made the alpha, the beta, the gamma, the delta, and within a few weeks, we'll have the Omicron. So we can mix and match and blend these things. And if you remember, the flu block, Sanofi's influenza vaccine is actually four proteins, not one. Mm-hmm. So they have four different hemagglutins. And the reason they do that is they have broader coverage, broader protection, so that if you miss, for example, you had Omicron in a delta world, you might have had better protection. Because of course, you know, Omicron had no protection from the prior mutants. So we're going to mix potentially Omicron with Delta, with Wuhan, or what's the emerging variant of the day. So we can do that very rapidly and very quickly. And the benefit we have is not only can we do that fast, within 60 days of getting the gene synthesized in the sequence, we can create a stable cell line, preclinical material to test to the bridging studies with the variant of concern at the time. And the cell line we have isn't inefficient, it's hyperproductive and it's scalable, it's programmable, it can be grown virtually in every country in the world. If I come down with the Zeta variant or whatever today, how long before you can churn out the proteins for the vaccine? We can develop a stable cell line within 60 days or two months or less of getting the synthetic gene sequence, which is should be basically a week. So within 60 days of getting the new virus and getting the gene sequence from the WHO or whoever has come up with the gene sequence at the time, we can have a stable cell line that you can then move into a preclinical study to demonstrate the efficacy. And because our cell line is not changing at all, the genetics, we keep it the same. We pop a gene in in the exact same place in the chromosome. So the regulatory agency that we've been talking to, PEI, Paul Eric Institute in Germany, mm-hmm. has mentioned that just like you're seeing with Moderna and Pfizer, we can just pop the RBD sequence out for Omicron and pop in Zeta and have a stable cell line producing that. But more importantly, we already have six or seven of the other RBDs that we could just blend with it so mm-hmm. that it gives you even broader coverage, kind of like the flu block example for the hemagglutinin influenza from Sanofi. I want to move away a bit from that now to other parts of the business. 
On the human health front, you had some news flow recently. This is December 17th of last year. You inked a deal to produce therapeutic proteins for Janssen. Tell me just a bit about that deal. Yeah. So our main business is it's a platform technology that is widely applicable for animal and human health. We're not a COVID-19 story. We became a COVID-19 story. It's a broad platform that can make oncology for rheumatoid arthritis, virtually any kind of disease, whether it's infectious or other disease, including cancer, PD-1s, Keytruda, Nivilumab, all those things. So we had been working with Janssen Pharmaceutical, part of J&J, previously on a couple different monoclonal antibodies, and they liked what they saw, and they recognized the future of biomanufacturing, you're going to need larger volumes of lower cost proteins to treat a global population. Even in America, in 2018, Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, had mentioned 2%, 2% of the American public has access to biologics. It was 40% of our federal budget, prescription drug budget. That was before COVID. This is an unsustainable model in America, let alone on a global basis. Yeah. So we're going to approach all the different diseases and try to use this platform in conjunction with big pharma, biotech, governmental agencies, and academia. And we're working with all those groups today, in addition to Janssen, to help them speed the development, lower the cost of producing biologic vaccines and drugs so that we can provide health equity to a global population. There's a couple more news items I want to touch on. The first is in the category of OTC products. On January 20th of this year, you announced that C1 is now able to churn out cannabinoids. So to what end, or should I guess? Well, to the end, it's, still, it's an open question on what end. But we felt that our platform can not only make proteins, we can make small molecules or primary or secondary metabolites. And we engineered C1 to make a primary metabolite, which is different than the cannabinoids that you'll hear about coming up sometime this year, and the potential to make that, which is a billion-dollar opportunity, and that alone. And then cannabinoids, we're not looking to make CBD in mass quantities. Potentially, we can do that. We're looking to make the more rare forms of cannabinoids, and we want to partner that out. So we've engineered C1 to demonstrate and filed a patent on this to use filamentous fungi, not just C1. And the reason we chose filamentous fungi is you can use a plant or other people are trying to do this recombinantly with yeast. And yeast are kind of like quasi-fungi, like a two-legged donkey in a thoroughbred race, where filamentous fungi have polyketide pathways, which are necessary to make secondary metabolites inherently already in our genomic DNA, where yeast, you have to then add more genes in than we would have to do with filamentous fungi. And more importantly, our IP position keeps us away from the recombinant yeast platforms. I'm going to ask you to detail the IP as one of my last questions, but I got a couple more things to do first. We have one last news item. This is in the animal health category, and this is just from a couple of weeks ago. And very oddly, this is going to dovetail for some news from this week, which has to do with bird flu. The deal you signed with, with Philbro Animal Health, I'm assuming this is vaccine work. What does this have to do with the bird flu? Well, Fibro, just so you know, is one of the top 10, maybe top seven animal health companies in the world, certainly in the vaccine space. So we've been working with Fibro on, I can't give you the name of the target, okay. but it's for a specific target, not an exclusive deal. It's on one target, but we're going to be working on additional things, which I can't divulge on, on your show <laughs> for other things. In I'll call you in a month. Life. Call me in a month, two months, three years. This thing's going to go on and on and on forever. I mean, we have the ability to make thousands of different things for thousands of different people. So bird flu just came out. And remember, we had worked on influenza, on flu, 
in 2015 and before with Sanofi Pasteur, the largest provider of influenza in the world. They demonstrated that the C1 produced hemagglutinin, which is the foundation of their flu block mm. against baclovirus. Again, here we come back to this, what you call a well-known characterized cell line. It's well-known characterized as an inefficient cell line that grows three days slower, that has viruses that are being removed, that we've demonstrated either 50 or 300 times greater productivity. And guess what? Sanofi saw not only we have greater productivity at a much lower cost, faster, it performed better. We used one-third of the protein, got a better result, and made it 50 times cheaper. So in the case of this bird flu, or if you remember the pandemic, it wasn't supposed to be COVID. It was supposed to be pandemic flu. Mm. And so let's, God forbid, the pandemic flu comes. Let's hope this time around, big pharma and government agencies recognize there's a faster, quicker, lower-cost way of making antigens for vaccines. But it's not just about vaccines. We're making monoclonal antibodies full-length monoclonal antibodies, three to four batches of an antibody at the same time you make one batch of, guess what? Another well-characterized cell line, Cho cells, Chinese hamster ovary cells. The problem is that the pharmaceutical industry and the governmental agencies do the same thing over and over again, expect different results. We see how that played out during the pandemic with the antibodies. Mm -hmm. Not only did we fall short, even with Regeneron and Lilly and AstraZeneca eventually getting approved, then Omicron came and completely blew them all away. They don't work any longer. Now you have VAR and you have GSK. But again, they got to overdose. So they're very limited. And there's emails that I have from governmental officials that actually recognize they fell short. And God forbid, if we would have had a more severe problem with Omicron and the disease was more like Delta, we were in big trouble. We were not prepared and we're still not prepared. But we at Dyadic have a solution. Three or four batches, higher yield, lower cost, microbial fermenters. So we can supplement Cho, not even replace it. We don't use the same equipment. We use E. coli microbial fermenters that are available virtually everywhere on the planet. So we can make more for less quicker in existing standard equipment. So we need to move this through the chain and through the clinic. And we need government and industry support to do that so that we're better prepared. For those listeners on the call that have the wherewithal to go to the deep to science dive, I would like to recommend that there is a detailed paper on the subject that was just published by Emil Farb et al. This is in the journal Vaccine, pages 1162 through 69. Now, to the point of investors, Ed, hopefully they are the ones listening. What's the number one question you get about the science? When is the world going to adopt this most efficient, <laughs> rapid, rapid way to, to make biologic drugs and vaccines? And the answer I would say to that is shows like yours. Chance and deals, deals with Syngene in India and Biocon, which is actually the largest pharmaceutical company in India who owns Syngene, Rubik in South Africa. All these different relationships with academia, government, and industry are blossoming now, okay? So we have to speed the adoption and use of this technology. It's kind of like, think about a Model T car and jury rigging it to make it better and better. That's what they're doing with the Cho cells or the baclavar cells. They're taking what they've used for decades, three and a half decades in some cases, and they're tweaking them, and they're taking incremental steps. We're like Moore's Law. We're going to just dramatically transform the way biomanufacturing is done because we have a more efficient cell, and we're scaling down. We're not scaling up. As you know, biotech has failed to scale. Mm. We went to the industrial world first, scaling at up to 500,000 liters. These guys are working at maximum 20,000 liters, 25 times less than the scale we've already been at. So we're going the other way. Our theory is discover and develop 
your molecules you want to make and what you're going to produce it in. These guys in biotech have been discovering things, changing the cell line, moving the gene to another one, and it just takes too much time. So there's probabilities of failure between switching one gene to the next cell, the next cell. And then ultimately, if you discover it in an organism that you're not going to use to manufacture it, you've got to then figure out what you're going to put it into. And often that leads to inefficiencies at best or failure at worst. All right. So let's go to the last two questions. The first is for the lawyers. The next one is for the bankers. The lawyer one, I think it's pretty easy. Where's the IP for all of this? Well, some of the IP is brand new. When we transitioned from industrial biotech to pharma, mm -hmm. we started generating new IP. We had several challenges we had to overcome over the last five or six years that took time and money, and we've accomplished those. Two of those are when you were in the industrial business, we not only made the enzymes for feed and food and biofuels, but the cells were producing other background enzymes. They were making sort of contaminants, mm -hmm. and some of those are proteases. So you can speculate a protease enzyme will chew down protein. So if you make an antibody or an antigen and you chew it down and the net result is less or zero, we had to get rid of those things. And so we spent the last five, six years painstakingly one by one by one identifying which are the genes that encode for the proteases that were destroying the proteins we were making because human therapeutic proteins are sensitive to proteases. Sure. We now have IP filed for 14 or 15 protease knockouts that allow us to make stable proteins at high levels with high purity. That's one example. And for antigens, we can make, we believe, the largest amount of stable proteins in the shortest amount of time for vaccine antigens. For monoclonal antibodies, there was a different challenge. Fungal cells don't make human glycan structures or carbohydrates on top of the protein. Right. The reason people use Cho cells or Chinese hamster ovary cells, they're mammals. They're close to human. But with synthetic biology, we were able to modify the fungal cell, C1, which was human-like in the first place, which was one of the other advantages of why we chose this fungal cell to engineer, in addition to robustness, versatility, productivity, had unique glycan structures that were more human, so there were less steps to take to make human glycan forms for the antibodies. And we now have monoclonal antibodies, for example, nivolumab, Bristol-Myers-Squibb's $8 billion drug, yep. and that's our model protein to show that we can make monoclonal antibodies with human-like glycan forms at high yields and low cost faster. And that's what we're using as a model protein. And that's why companies like Janssen and others are coming to us, not just for monoclonal antibodies, but bispecifics, tri-specifics, FC fusion proteins, different enzymes, antigens, virus-like particles, you name it, the world's our oyster. So if you think about oysters, put a piece of sand in, Black pearl, red pearl, green pearl. <laughs> Put a gene in C1, antibody, vaccine, therapeutic, you name it. Well, the other thing about oysters is they're not cheap. They're not super expensive, but they're not cheap. So let's talk about money. What kind of runway are you looking at? And what sort of conversations are you looking to have in the near term with investors or potential partners? Well, we're constantly having conversations with potential partners. In fact, just before your call, we're on the phone with a top 10 pharma company and about 12 other scientists. So every week, we're having discussions about how we can apply C1, the breadth, the scope, the depth, the diversity of where we can apply it. So what we hope to do is what we did in the industrial biotech business. We did a non-exclusive license deal with Shell for $10 million, Shell and Codexis, upfront cash, future milestones and royalties, BASF for a non-biofuel application for feed and food and industrial enzymes, $6 million upfront, milestones and royalties. We did a deal with Abengoa Bioenergy for $15 million 
in total. Again, upfront fees, milestones, and royalties. So we're looking to do the same thing. Now, unfortunately or fortunately, then DuPont came up and wrote us a check for $75 million and took that business out. So if you didn't have a license, you weren't getting one at that point. So in the pharma industry, what these guys have to recognize, and they are, is we have a way to do things quicker at a higher level productivity, more flexibly, more robustly, that's ultimately going to change the game here and transform the industry. So you're either on the outside looking in or the inside looking out. And we'll have non-exclusive license deals like with Janssen or Fibro or an exclusive for a specific target that brings in cash up front, non-dilutive funding, potential milestones and royalties down the way. And we also have our own pipeline of products, whether we can turn the cannabinoid technology into a out-licensed and out-licensed edit, the primary metabolite, the Villomab that we're working on, or a variety of other product candidates in our pipeline. And then, of course, we're talking to investors because we're a publicly traded NASDAQ biotech company with the symbol DYAI. And I think they can create significant value for themselves. We're going to create significant value for ourselves, our shareholders. But most importantly, we're going to make healthcare more accessible and affordable for patients globally. And stay tuned because they're working in Africa with the Rubik Consortium, working in India with Syngene, and a variety of other opportunities to really deal with the middle and lower income countries in addition to just the wealthy countries. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That is a wrap. My guest today is Mark Enlefarb. He is the founder, CEO, and president of Diadec. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's Benchtop Bios. I hope that this episode will serve as yet another data point to guide you in your investment strategies. If you wish to hear more of Lifesize Benchtop Bios, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google. Also, if there's a company or a particular executive you'd like to get to know, I do take requests. Please send those to ncanada at lifesciadvisors.com. Until next week then, goodbye, or for that matter, good sell, whatever boosts your portfolio.